Hello, and welcome to Facts Matter, a podcast by the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. I'm MLive senior political reporter Simon Schuster, and I'll be your guest host today for a conversation with Craig Thiel, research director at CRC. In November 2022, voters passed Proposal 1 with 66% of the vote in favor, and Michigan has long been at the bottom of lists measuring transparency, anti-corruption measures, and state government. Campaign ads for this constitutional amendment asked voters to demand transparency from politicians by requiring them to file pers- personal financial disclosures. Democrats, who had spent years in the legislative majority castigating their Republican counterparts for ethical lapses and opaque practices, had taken trifecta control of government and hopes swelled that an authoritative, wide-ranging transparency measure would be passed. Uh, but the legislative majority stayed silent for months, and in the matter of a few weeks, in late October and early November, a package of financial disclosure bills was passed through the legislature, and it has received, in the weeks following, sort of a mixed reception. Craig here is recently produced a blog post giving an authoritative overview of some of these events and setting the scene for how this legislation came to be. Craig, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, happy to be here. Happy to chat about this decades-long wait that we've had to join the other 48 states in the country to get some modicum of transparency for our top state elected officials. Maybe we can start with the basics then. Why have people been advocating for this for so many years? Why do they see personal financial disclosure of elected officials as an important thing to bake into our political process? Right. So in our democracy, we go to the polls, we elect someone to represent us, send them to Lansing, City Hall, Congress, what have you, with the hopes that they're going to represent our interests, paving our road, funding our schools, keeping the streets safe. That's all confounded if the people that we send to represent us in the legislative branch or the executive branch are working for some other interests, financial or otherwise. And so financial disclosure isn't necessarily going to change how people operate necessarily, but it is going to add that view into people's financial relationships, their employment positions, debts that they may have, any number of items that might confound their ability to represent us as their constituents in the legislative branch or the executive branch. So that's kind of the purpose of financial disclosure is to ensure that the people who we send to make these weighty decisions are operating in our best interest, the citizens, the constituents, and not necessarily someone who's paying them for a vote, for a decision. If we can put a historical lens on this for a moment, I think when we look at transparency-related legislation, or should I say transparency-related laws in Michigan, the Michigan Campaign Finance Act, the Michigan Lobbying Disclosure Act, a lot of these came to be in the late 70s. Can you sort of walk us through what spurred on this legislation and where some other states went further, where Michigan stopped? Yeah. Well, we can thank Tricky Nixon for th- for this. And the Watergate scandal largely elevated concerns over ethics, transparency, accountability, and government. And that's kind of 
a broad assertion here on my part, but what we really see is the Watergate scandal prompting interest in kind of peeling back and pulling back the curtains on how government operates. So the federal government in the mid-70s, following the Watergate scandal, passed its uh, ethics and government law. It applies not just to Congress, but the executive branch as well. And I think states followed suit. A lot of the financial disclosure laws, campaign finance, lobby disclosure laws kind of were born out of that Watergate scandal. And Michigan is not dissimilar in that regard. In 1975, there was a major political reform act that the legislature passed that had to do with campaign finance, lobby disclosure, and personal finance, uh, personal financial disclosure. And my research shows that the law as passed was challenged on its constitutionality with respect to a very arcane provision in the state constitution. The Supreme Court saw it the way that way and basically declared the law unconstitutional. So the legislature went back to the drawing board and separated those three components out and passed a law dealing with lobby disclosure in the late 70s, campaign finance in the late 70s. But left on the cutting room floor was a statute dealing with personal financial disclosure. And that's where it laid more or less for the last 50 plus years. There have been legislative efforts to bring about financial disclosure, but it wasn't until this proposal one vote that really broke this decades long logjam. So we do have campaign finance. And I know your past experience as the director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network, you've got deep knowledge on that. We also have a lobby disclosure law. Both of those were born out of of that Watergate scandal. And that's the case in a lot of states. Mm -hmm. And so I think what was particularly fascinating to me is that when you look at the campaign ads for this proposal, they talked exclusively about one component of this. And this speaks to your earlier point about these multi-pronged policy efforts that we've seen in the past um, and spoke exclusively to demanding transparency from politicians, filing personal financial disclosures. But that was not the only aspect of this that was included in there. A colleague of mine, Emily Lawler, the politics editor at the Detroit Free Press, I think, aptly described this part of this proposal as a pot sweetener. And the other half of this proposal was a reform or a rejiggering, if you will, of Michigan's term limits. Can you talk to me about how the proposal evolved from its initial proposal to what we ended up seeing uh, the voters pass? Sure. Put yourself in the time machine and let's go back to the early part of 2022. Codre of political insiders, for lack of a better word, came together and put a ballot proposal together that addressed both a modification of our strictest in the nation term limits law that was passed back in the mid-90s. We've been operating uh, more or less for the last close to 30 years under a a term term limits law that applies to the the Senate and the House, and and that's been a uh, a priority of a number of uh, interest groups in in Michigan was to 
modified term limits and, and effectively lengthen them, the amount of time that individuals can serve in the House and the Senate. And that was a key piece of their ballot proposal. Your, your colleague, Emily, is probably spot on. The financial disclosure was kind of thrown in as a sweetener for people to buy into the assertion that the term limits experiment was broken. You wonder, had the two pieces been on the ballot as separate items, if term limits would have passed? We know the financial disclosure is very popular when it's when polling's done on this. So it was a little bit of a of a sweetener to get the term limits proposal over the end line. So the proposal requires the legislature then to come up with the statutory framework to implement kind of the broad guidelines of this constitutional amendment. The proposal said, legislature, governor, you have to the end of 2023, calendar year 2023, to get a package enacted. And as you pointed out in your intro, yeah, as expected, whenever there's a important policy decision, elected officials drag their feet and wait to the very end. And literally, the work of the legislature wasn't revealed to the last couple weeks of the session. And the, the final vote came on the last day of last voting day of the legislative session as well. So the irony here is that the transparency that we're getting from this law came to be in a very non-transparent way when you think of the legislative process and public hearings, debate, it really got put up for a vote, arms were twisted, and it passed. Yeah, and I think there was a couple of interesting sleight of hands through the passage of this legislation. First, when it was initially introduced, it had very stringent disclosure requirements that Personal financial disclosures had to be no less comprehensive than what members of Congress require, which means listing out individual equities that an individual owns and filing almost uh, periodically. When equities are traded of a significant volume in, in Congress, they require periodic disclosure. And this didn't last, however. And in sort of a, a, a parlay with the legislature, they agreed to water down sort of the requirements of, pers- of the personal financial disclosure component in-, in exchange for skipping the expensive signature collection process. And I think on top of that, too, the term limits disclosure was also quite clever because it technically lowered the lifetime limit that you could spend in the legislature from a total of 14 years between both chambers to 12 in each chamber. But the reality is, and I think a lot of people who spend a lot of time around the Capitol are aware, this is going to translate to uh, state legislators spending more time in office because they don't have to have that sort of of ga- uh, uh, gamble of trying to switch chambers and perhaps going from the 110 member house to the 38 member senate where they might be uh, stuck in an incumbent on incumbent primary. But stepping back to your final point there, the language of proposal one provides some broad disclosure requirements. When you look at the constitutional language, you have to have descriptions of assets and debts, sources of earned and unearned income, memberships and organizations. But there's not a lot more detail. Proponents of the proposal described this as a floor for what should be required, and that the legislature had an opportunity to build upon that. Talk about how comprehensive or uncomprehensive these requirements could be, and really how much further the legislature actually ended up going in the final statutory language. Right. So I think you've, you've 
talked about the history. The original ballot proposal put forward was going to be very stringent. It would have mirrored what is required of federal officials. And that wasn't precluded in the legislature's drafting of its final product. It could have gone back there. But uh, it is very uh, well known that what has passed here is represents the bare minimum that is required under the constitutional framework. You'll hear advocates of what has been passed saying, well, we can come back and we can modify this. Well, I point to the history of inaction on this for decades to, as proof that it's probably not going to get revisited by the legislature. You ticked off the, the major items that are required to be disclosed. These are not remarkable in any sense compared to what other states do. In fact, there were a couple of known loopholes going into the development of this proposal that advocates for more robust disclosure called for in the final version that were ignored, notably the requirement for spousal disclosure. This is a requirement that more than half the states contain have in their financial disclosure laws. The federal disclosure law requires this. And why is this important? Well, simply because assets can move from one owner to another owner by filling out a, a sheet of paper. And if we're asking elected officials to disclose their assets, we don't want the abil- their ability to transfer those assets to their spouse and shield it from public view. So spousal disclosure was an item for debate briefly, but it was clear that the main people who were going to be involved in negotiating this final policy were not on board with that. So that, that got left on the cutting room floor. And then the other piece, I think, and this this is where we see some linkage between the lobby disclosure law and financial disclosure, and you've done a lot of reporting on this, is the role of these 501c4 social welfare nonprofits that elected officials lean into for purposes of their travel, their entertainment. The disclosure does not require any type of of reporting on travel or entertainment expenses paid for by these 501c4 social welfare groups. It does require them to report travel paid for by lobbyists, but that's already a requirement under the Lobby Disclosure Act. So I think there was an attempt to try to paper over that them missing that loophole by including that. But in large measure, we're going to get two pieces of the same information or yeah. the, the same information seen, twice. Yes. And I think we've seen practice too, that the vast majority of lobbyist sponsored travel, they're able to avoid the statutory language that it's for a lobbyable purpose and then avoid any disclosure at all. I think Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson has said that Michigan's lobbying law is maddeningly weak, right? Yep. That's kind of the guts of this, the requirements. I'll note that there'll be an annual report that has to come out. The first one will be in April, and then every year after it'll be May. So that's a shot, a picture in time of what income, employment, debts, etc. Things can change over those 365 days that could materially affect where these people are involved, what they're entangled with. And we won't get that reporting until a year later. 
Congress, as you alluded to, does require more periodic reporting when transactions are done with respect to selling and buying assets. So there's more of a in-the-moment, real-time reporting going on at the congressional level, which isn't going to be happening here. I think our our blog suggests that it's going to shine a light, but it's going to be a fairly dim light on these decisions that our public top state public officials are making. Yeah. And so I think on one side of this coin, right, you have these reporting requirements. We The legislature spent some time outlining what they should be. And then on the other side, right, you have the review, publicization of these, how the public can access these reports. And then beyond that, if there's a discrepancy, if there's something that seems illegitimate, can you go over the punishments for yeah. either lying or providing a falsehood? Yeah. And then will, in your opinion, the state government have the necessary tools, either in terms of funding or statutory authority, to really provide robust enforcement to ensure that people aren't obfuscating and leaving important subjects off of these reports? Yeah, so the law entrusts the Department of State with the administration of these duties. It makes sense here. Currently, the Department of State is responsible for campaign finance, responsible for lobby disclosure. It makes sense to put this in there, in that component. I will point out that the Secretary, the Department of State is headed by the Secretary of State, who will also have to report here. So there's no firewall between the top state elections official and this. Other states have entrusted uh, this type of work to an ethics commission that might be bipartisan, inclusive of citizens, elected officials, etc. Other states entrust it to their secretary of state, some to a, a legislative, separate legislative ethics committee. So it makes sense that we've got it with the secretary of state, but I'll, I'll just point that, that potential conflict out right now. In terms of what role the Department of State has, yeah, they're going to collect the forms, have to process them, make them available. People who feel like something's not going right, they know something, can file complaints. The Secretary of State has a investigative role in that regard. There's appeals process for people who are alleged to have violated the, the disclosure in some way. So, there's due process involved there. And then if violations are found out, there are some penalties. They are more on the lighter side, especially in the context of maybe what the federal law requires and what some other states' laws require. But at the end of the day, I don't know that this is designed to be punitive as much as it is designed to be an incentive, a disincentive to report accurately. So if you fail to report, you'll get a ding reminder you failed to report. If you just outright lie on your report, you get dinged by a fine. If you end up not filing, you can get dinged on with a fine. Uh, so there are some fines. But when we get down to brass tacks here, in your estimation, does this have teeth? Are there significant disincentives? Is this something that would really, if someone has something serious or egregious of a large scale to hide, will this successfully disincentivize them as someone who's worked for a long time around state government and in the legislature? Yeah. Well, time's going to tell, right? And fortunately, 
we're not going to run the counterfactual and have half of the members report and the other half not report and then see what happens. So time will tell. There's definitely, it changes the incentive structure for sure because people's employment, income, debts are going to be out in the open for the voting public to see. And I, I think that level of transparency and vote, voter scrutiny should help deter some some behaviors. Will it will it deter all the the behaviors that we've seen? Time will tell on that. Yeah, and the reason why I like touching on your you know experience in state government here is that when you listen to the the critics of this legislation, progressives in the state legislature, because this was, I think, notably one of, there was a few throughout this uh, particular legislative year, but one of the policy items where Democrats who have presented a shockingly united front throughout this year split most visibly and vocally. There was a lot of anger in leadership that there was a progressive contingent and then also a contingent on the Republican side who were really vocal, who were really crying out about what they saw as a lack of stringency from these requirements. And when you listen to them speak about this, they often talk about a culture of Lansing, a culture in state government where people are able to re- receive benefits in office. Obviously, these are not direct cash bribes, but it's a series of benefits that elected officials get, like paid for travel, junkets to foreign countries, a lot of free lobbyist meals, and perhaps undisclosed conflicts of interest, which hopefully will now be disclosed. Do you see this as a policy intervention that has the potential to change that culture in a substantial way? Yeah, I hope it does. Again, time's going to be the arbiter of whether or not it, it affects the culture. Going on at the same time will be this term limits modification that we talked about. Some have postulated that the reason why there's as much kind of feathering your own bed while you're in the legislature is because people are always looking for their next job. And so if you're looking, you have a short tenure in the the House and you're going to be wanting to run for the Senate, well, you've got to start making those plans now and and operationalize those plans now, whether that's courting certain interest groups, voters, corporations. And the term limits change is going to allow people to to spend a little more time in each chamber. As you noted, it's reducing the total number of years that you can serve in the Michigan legislature from 14 to 12, but it allows people to spend, as opposed to six years in the in the House, now they can spend 12 years in the House. And instead of eight years in the Senate, they can spend 12 years in the Senate. So maybe that may dilute some of the the, the pressure that's on elected officials and, and incentives for elected officials to not really represent their constituents the way that they've been voted to to office to do. Yes, I guess let's revisit this discussion in a few years, Simon, and and we'll see if we're still reading about, and and I suspect we will because the loophole wasn't closed, nonprofit supported by lobbyist contributions paying for travel of our elected officials. That is not going to change. I can tell you that. 
Yeah. And, and I think one of the, the important points there, too, is that when you listen to some of the proponents of this legislation as currently enacted, legislators like State Senator Sam Singh, who chaired the Oversight Committee, and State Senator Jeremy Moss, who really trumpeted the passage of this legislation, which we should note, and I apologize for not emphasizing this earlier, that policymakers and state government had a mandate to pass this legislation. It had to be, it had to be passed and implemented by December 31st, 2023, or the legislature would be open to a lawsuit, a course of action from any citizen who wanted to sue them for failing to implement this legislation. One of the things that these policymakers trumpeted is that this is a step forward in the right direction. And one of the things that uh, Senator Singh sort of teased after the passage of this legislation is that he'd like to perhaps revisit the Lobbying Disclosure Act, that there could be perhaps room to make the requirements for disclosure from lobbyists more robust. Because right now, there's so little, almost no itemization of lobbyist expenditures. If they're treating a group of legislators to a really fancy meal, they can write down four or five legislators, Democratic staff, whatever they like. And you really don't know who's reaping the benefits from that free fruit and drink. Likewise, the definition of a lobby, a lobbyable purpose is so narrow that a lot of this travel goes undisclosed. So I think for, from one of the things that I'm going to be interested to see is if there is actually really even a, a measurable amount of political will to actually require broader disclosure of these things. Do you think that there's a possibility that by amending the Lobbyist Disclosure Act, they can then broaden the disclosure requirements within this new statute? Well, if they open up that law, they cannot do anything to the Public Official Financial Disclosure Act, the one that the legislature's passed, the governor's mm -hmm. promised to sign. I, I think some of the disclosure requirements, though, in the Financial Disclosure Act are based on definitions in the Lobbyist Disclosure Act, no? Right, right. I mean, we're getting down into the weeds a little bit yeah. on this. For sure, there are some links back to in the the law that was just passed to the definitions used in the Lobby Disclosure Act. Clearly, if you make some modifications there, the definitional changes will affect what's being disclosed through this new law. But more broadly, I think that the question is the Lobby Disclosure Act, as you pointed out here, probably needs to be revisited. The history there of that law is quite colorful. It was the, the original law that was passed was neutered in the courts. If you follow the implementation of the law, there are, I, I gather, tens, dozens of declaratory statements by the Secretary of State on how to interpret this law. It's a very messy law, the lobby disclosure law is. It probably needs a refresher. But again, I'll just point out, and you made this point as well, we have financial disclosure because the legislature's hand was forced. They were going to get sued if they aren't. There's not the same mandate with lobby disclosure. And absent that, the 50 years plus of inaction doesn't give me great hope that they're going to revisit the Lobby Disclosure Act on a voluntary basis. It's... Again, Michigan has taken a step forward with the passage of this law, and let's let's acknowledge that. But it's largely the bare minimum that the the people demanded of them, and it's you know basically in line with what other states are doing here. 
Uh, other states have been doing this for 50 plus years and, and we haven't. Uh, do you see sort of, is this an issue, financial disclosure that is going to have to happen through public referenda? Is this something where there has to be an organized effort external to state government to sort of force their hand as we saw with this legislation? I mean, that that was the route that that was taken with Proposal 1. I There was some hope that Proposal 1 would, and I think you saw this in, as you mentioned, some of the different legislative interests, Democrat and Republican alike, that wanted to go further. And I think there are people that wanted this to be the entree to a, a broader government ethics reform movement, dealing perhaps with campaign finance, lobby disclosure, revolving door for elected state officials, personal financial disclosure, open records is another area where Michigan is woefully behind other states because our legislature and the governor's office are both exempt from our Freedom of Information Act. That's been a something that's been stalled in the legislature for years. At what point do the citizens and, and groups of citizens say enough is enough, let's put it on the ballot? My guess is if it's a purely citizen-run proposal, it's going to be a lot stricter than what the proposal one final product looks like because the voters are going to probably demand a lot more than the bare minimum in the end. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about this particular domain, transparency in government, government ethics reform, is that despite us being in, in the midst of an era of hyper-partisanship, where so many things fall along hyper, uh, partisan lines, this is one policy area that really does not and excuse those traditional partisan divides. Do you think that, and when you look at, I think, one notable example is the partnership between state senators, Ed McBroom and Jeremy Moss, how they have spent, I think, eight years now pushing for expansions of uh, Michigan's open records law to cover the legislature and the governor's office. Do you think that that's a hopeful sign that we can move forward with some of this legislation? Right. I mean, this this does poll across party lines. It's not It's not a Republican or a Democrat policy per se. It's a good government. And those elected officials who want government to, to be open, accountable, you know, are the ones who are leading the charge on this. They're the ones who want to break with the culture of the past. I'm hopeful that the names that you mentioned and their the people who follow in their footsteps when they leave office come in with the same intention and vigor to to improve state government. Again, Michigan is a laggard and has been on many accounts in this area. And that's not just me talking. That's independent groups who've scanned other states' laws and have put Michigan at the bottom, giving us a, a failing F grade. You know, very few states get A's. Very few also get F's, and Michigan is is got an F. So until these other changes happen, I suspect Michigan's going to continue to be at the bottom of states in terms of its ethics and state government. And this is going to move us marginally. This passage of this law is going to move us marginally up the rankings, but I don't think we're going to leapfrog too many states in a top-to-bottom listing. 
Well, I think that that puts a nice bow on things here. I'm Simon Schuster, senior political reporter with MLive, and I've been chatting with Craig Thiel, research director at the Citizens Research Council of Michigan, online at crcmich.org and on Twitter at crcmich. You can also follow me on Twitter at Simon underscore Schuster. This has been Facts Matter, a podcast presentation of the Council of Michigan. Thanks again, Craig. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too. The Citizens Research Council of Michigan has been providing lawmakers, academics, and the media, and all Michiganders, really, with factual, unbiased, independent information on significant issues concerning state and local government, organization, and finance for 107 years. Our research is available to you. Go online at crcmich.org and on Twitter at crcmich. Download our research, check out our numerous blogs, and listen to our podcasts. And while you're there, please consider supporting our research with a donation. We rely on charitable donations for our work. This has been a Facts Matter podcast, a presentation of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan.